um, is being generously supported by Aileen Burns and Johan Lund. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity to, uh, to be able to welcome Daniel Barber here for this talk. Um, Tess Maunder has been very generous in the time that she's taken to uh, put this thing together. Uh, Daniel's visit is supported by the Griffith Climate Change Response Program, um, generously, uh, or not generously, headed, headed, directed by Brendan Mackey and, um, and supported by Amira Kulak, and they've been very generous in their support of uh, Daniel's visit. Um, the uh, Victoria University of Wellington uh, is celebrating over the weekend uh, its uh, 40th anniversary of uh, having a School of Architecture, which is the, uh, the pr principal reason why Daniel is in the neighborhood, as it were. And so uh, I feel um, some obligation to thank them for providing the opportunity to be able to bring, uh, bring uh, Daniel to Southeast Queensland, to the Gold Coast, and to Brisbane here. Um, to introduce Daniel, I've, I've known uh, him for quite some time. We keep running into each other at conferences and talking about opportunities to be in the same room and, uh, and um, persuade each other into um, rooms that we have some control over. Um, and, uh, and I'm really pleased that, uh, that he's been able to make a visit, to, visit the, uh, to the Architectural History Group at Griffith University in the School of Environment down on the Gold Coast, uh, which, I, which I convene. Uh, Daniel is the uh, Curry C. and Thomas A. Barron Visiting Professor of, uh, in Architecture, oh, sorry, in Environment and Humanities at Princeton University, hosted by the Princeton Environmental Institute and the School of Architecture there at Princeton. Uh, he's a man of many hats, um, another being the Alexander, uh, being the Alexander von Humboldt uh, Fellow at the Rachel Carson Center for Environment and Society. You're picking up a theme here. Uh, and when he's not doing either of those things, he's, the assist he's an assistant professor and erstwhile associate chair of architecture at, um, at Penn, University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Daniel brings to his work on environment, culture, society, and architecture, um, training in the fine arts and the history of ideas and in architecture. And he does an incredible job of offering an historical perspective on the relationship between architectural culture uh, and environmental uh, consciousness. Um, in the middle of the 20th century, a period in which uh, many of the tools that we uh, deployed across the 70s, 80s, and through to the present moment uh, were, were worked out. Um, his book, uh, A House in the Sun, Modern Architecture and Solar Energy in the Cold War, will appear with uh, Oxford University Press in September of this year. But this talk considers approaches to the question of climate, um, a new book, a second book, uh, that follows on uh, hot on the heels of the first. Uh, and he will speak, as you see, to the title, The Nature of the Image. So please join me in welcoming Daniel Barber. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew, very much. Uh, it's really great to be here uh, back in Brisbane. I was in this room, what, eight years ago for a conference that Andrew had organized, and it's, it's a real pleasure to be back. I'm going to warn everybody on this side, you're not going to be able to see the titles of the slides, which isn't that big of a deal, but you're free to move, you know, as you, as you wish. Um, and yeah, so a big thanks to Andrew um, for uh, putting this all together and to his colleagues at Griffith and to everyone here at the IMA who's been very generous in welcoming us and, and helping to organize things. Also, Brendan Mackey of the Griffith Climate Change Response Program uh, for helping to coordinate and fund this uh, event as well. I'm really happy to have my chance to share uh, some of my research with you. The work I'm presenting is part of a larger project that is focused on sort of rescripting the history of modern architecture according to climatic themes, right? Uh, so the main sites for this intervention, as we're going to see, are simultaneously around the production and distribution of images 
and the role of institutions in kind of managing and encouraging specific types of design research. Uh, indeed, this notion that research is something that architects do is in itself a sort of uh, disciplinary and discursive and, and kind of pedagogical intervention that will be central uh, to the growing awareness of climate as an issue in architecture from this period. So in part, what I want to try to do today is sort of place into some uh, contemporary, uh, sorry, place the sort of concern around climate change into a sort of broader historical context, right? And, and in effect, use architecture as a lens to examine some of these developments. So we'll both be sort of playing out some histories uh, within the field and then also kind of seeing how that resonates uh, across, across a wider range of discussions. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk for about 50 minutes or so, and I strongly uh, accept questions at the end, right? It's really happy to kind of have a discussion as, as we finish up. Okay. So um, in his well-known 1966 essay, The Economics of the Coming Spaceship Earth, Kenneth Boulding, a pioneer in the field of environmental economics, began by claiming that, quote, we are now in the middle of a long process of transition of the nature of the image which man has of himself and his environment. Boulding, then working with a think tank called Resources for the Future, was concerned with a very specific conception of the image, one that he had outlined in his 1957 book entitled appropriately, The Image, Knowledge in Life and Society. In that book, after describing his sense of himself located in space and time, I know, he wrote, uh, quote, that if I go far enough around the world, I will come back to where I am now, end quote. And also in the world of what he called personal relationships and of subtle intimations and emotions. Boulding concluded in 1957, uh, quote, what I am talking about is knowledge. Though knowledge perhaps is not a good word for this, perhaps one would rather say my image of the world. Behavior, Boulding insisted, behavior depends on the image. This principle would guide the Spaceship Earth essay, contrasting images of the world, of the present, and of possible futures were presented so that, he hoped, uh, collective social behavior could change. Early civilizations, as he wrote in 1966, imagined themselves to be living on a virtually illimitable plane. This image of an endless frontier, where there was always somewhere to go if resources ran out or social structures failed, Boulding termed the cowboy economy. He placed this in stark contrast to the spaceman economy, in which, as he wrote, man has been accustoming himself to the notion of a spherical Earth and a closed sphere of human activity, end quote. The world is a closed system without unlimited reservoirs of anything. This closed system was most famously imaged in the period through photographs such as this, one of the many so-called blue marble photographs taken by Apollo astronauts starting in 1968, looking back at the Earth from space. Images that, as the historian of photography Robin Kelsey has recently written, immediately became, quote, symbols of the shared fate, of the shared home and fate of all humanity, end quote. Writing in the mid-1980s, the UN report on our common future, the document generally understood to have coined the term sustainability, claimed that, to quote one more time, historians may eventually find that this vision had a greater impact on thought than did the Copernic Copernican revolution of the 16th century, which upset human self-image by revealing that the Earth is not the center of the universe. Also, in the mid-80s, the media theorist Willem Flusser would propose that, quote, it is likely, bordering on certain, 
that the existential interests of future men and women will focus on technical images, unquote. Boulding's essay was one of the first coherent proposals suggesting that humans are not at the center of the Earth's ecological and resource systems, but rather subject to the potential infinite contingencies of those systems. He intended to articulate a new approach to social and economic systems, to ways of being in the world that would reflect this new collective image. The essential measure of the success of the economy, he argued in 1966, was not in the capacity to maximize profit, but was rather, quote, in the state of the human bodies and minds that are included in the system, end quote. So at stake, and this is sort of the framing argument that will direct us uh, throughout the evening, uh, in these images of the globe were the new ideas, at stake were the new ideas about the human that they would invoke, and the new social patterns and individual behaviors they were seen to encourage. At stake as well is a conception of the relationship between images and imagination and the role of images in transforming cultural, economic, and political dispositions. Debates over the role of images in impacting social behavior have, of course, developed at least since Kant. More recently, the question of the collective imagination has informed the theorization of global communities and scientific cultures in the very different work of Arjuna Potterai and Bruno Latour both in different ways, concerned to describe how what Potterai terms imagination as a collective practice can play a role in political and cultural change. And the terms of the debate have recently again shifted. <clears throat> the liter in the literary critic Rob Nixon's recent book entitled Slow Violence and the Environmentalism of the Poor, he argues that the environmental crisis broadly construed is itself a crisis of the image. Climate change, Nixon writes, the thawing cryosphere, toxic drift, deforestation, acidifying oceans, he goes on for a few lines, but we get the idea, uh, uh, and other slowly unfolding environmental catastrophes present formidable representational obstacles that can hinder our efforts to mobilize and act decisively. This basic premise from Boulding up through Nixon is that the way in which we conceive of, imagine, and represent the relationship between humans and the environment is central to the patterns and processes that allow us to live comfortably within it. These transformations, the transformations that can be affected by new kinds of images, are not only historical in nature, developing over time and situated in their specific conjuncture, they also have implications for the production of historical knowledge. In Dipesh Chakrabarti's 2009 essay, The Climate of History for Theses, he posed a series of compelling questions for historians. The discipline of history, he wrote, quote, exists on the assumption that our past, present, and future are connected by a certain continuity of human experience, end quote. The specter of climate change has introduced a profound sense of risk to our understanding of the longevity of the species and has disrupted this sense of continuity. Chakrabarti claims that the Anthropocene, this new Earth epic uh, that I'm sure we've all heard plenty about uh, following the Holocene, is defined by the emergence of urban industrial society as a geologic and geophysical force, which challenges both, quote, the ideas about the human that usually sustain the discipline of history and many of its analytic strategies and methods. His intervention is to insist that while the Anthropocene demands new material and technological innovations, it also poses new cultural and aesthetic concerns. It focuses us again on the nature of the image. Although Boulding's 1966 appeal for a new image economy was not made directly towards architects, it might as well have been. 
The two decades after World War II saw extensive experimentation in how architectural practices could better relate to surrounding ecological conditions. In the efficiency of production, in the use of solar power, and my primary subject this evening, in the alignment of form, orientation, and materials of a building to its surrounding climatic conditions. As part of these new practices, new forms of representation emerged that sought to clarify possible social, material, and economic relationships, and that sought to adjust those relationships according to a new image of how to live in the world. These drawings, diagrams, and photographs both produced a new image of how architecture could inform environmental systems and also encouraged professionals to think about a new set of design criteria. And though Boulding's reliance on a universal image of subjective knowledge borders on mystification, his imperative to reconsider and restructure representations of the relationship between economies and ecologies opens up a fertile ground for the analysis of how architecture has imagined a relationship to climate. So in order to pursue some of these uh, interests, I want to explore a few aspects of the American arch architectural discourse in the period immediately following World War II that were conscious of increasing pressures on the global ecological system, and that were exploring both how architectural innovations could alleviate these pressures, and also the types of image making that would help communicate the apparent problems and their possible solutions to their professional peers and to the general public. Concerned, in other words, with this relationship between the human and the globe and with new means of representing both. So I'm interested, as we'll see, in the content of the kinds of images that we're going to be looking at, in their form, and in the rhetorical strategies that infused them. A presupposition, albeit often implicit, in the diagrams produced by architects in the period about how images communicate, right? about how images are seen to become instruments, tools for change, mobilizing efforts to act decisively, as Nixon has proposed, by virtue of an increasingly detailed diagram of the complex relationship, the intractable interconnections between human and natural systems. So I'm going to proceed here in two sections, first looking briefly at some solar house experiments that sort of set the stage, uh, and then at some diagrams of climatic design methods in hopes of further understanding the nature of these images and the kinds of humans that they proposed. Okay, so part one. It will be helpful, perhaps, to briefly, sorry, to briefly offer some general architectural historical context as parameters for examining these complex developments by starting with a few well-known examples and two, two very general claims. The first claim, in the decade or so after World War II, the modern American house and its representation was an important site for experiments in ways of living broadly considered. Again, this is this is not uh, new information, right, but sort of uh, summarizing some of these general trends. Uh, this was perhaps most clearly articulated in the case study house program, a series of designs and built projects supported by the journal Arts and Architecture from 1945 to 1966, which was conceived precisely in order to demonstrate how modern techniques and materials could lead to new lifestyles. Now iconic houses such as the Eames House, case study eight, uh, built in case study house number eight, built in 1949, used steel frames to dramatically open up the interior to light and air, and also allow for interpenetrations of interior and exterior conditions. Pierre Koenig's stall house, number 22, 
built in the Hollywood Hills in 1959, deployed these and other familiar tropes of modern design, the open plan, the flat roof, and again, the use of new materials and building techniques. The British architect Peter Smithson, sorry, would later write that these houses encouraged a wholly new kind of conversation about how innovations and their integration into new, mostly suburban patterns of ter territorial development could bring the good life to the American public. A life significantly that was imaged <clears throat> through carefully staged and manipulated photographs such as this one, uh, this one here being produced from uh, multiple negatives by Julius Schulman. At the same time, these houses were party to numerous other iterations of the general premise that technology, new methods and materials, would transform ways of life in the American suburb. Here in this celebrated photograph from Life magazine, an array of new devices uh, and appliances seen to be improving the conditions of American life in the wake of the war were laid out across the lawn. The helicopter hovering above, perhaps the most potent indication of the good life that wartime technology was seen to be bringing to the domestic sphere. Other kinds of life were also on the horizon. An earlier case study, house number four, Ralph Rapson's unbuilt Greenbelt House of 1945 is suggestive here. Rapson's plan, as we can see, uh, called for two simple rectangles. Is this gonna work? Well, uh, you can see just kind of two rectangles bisected by this green belt, right? Um, uh, public programs, the kitchen, living room, and sitting area were on one side, the bottom half of the slide there. Um, uh, private programs, bedrooms, baths, and more intimate eating area and salon were on the other. Aside from this basic division, right, this kind of simple private-public programmatic division, Rapson insisted that many permutations were possible. Shelter, he wrote, must have one major characteristic, flexibility, exclamation point, right? This was developed not only in the relatively indeterminate, indeterminate condition of the two isolated volumes, but also and most demonstrably in the interior strip. The green belt, Rapson wrote, might have, quote, a large amount of planting or very little. It may be a digestible garden or a graveled area with a small pool, countless possibilities. The most important aspect of the green belt, he concluded, lies in the personality each family will give it. Here, the individual might grow, end quote. Even though, as Dolores Hayden has pointed out, Rapson's drawing reaffirmed the nuclear family and the gender inequities of the post-war period, perhaps most clearly, to skip back, if you can see on the left here, uh, uh, perhaps most clearly as this man flies off in his helicopter, right, while his wife hangs, uh, presumably his wife, uh, hangs the laundry on the line, right, uh, an imperative to use new technologies, materials, so, sorry, despite this sort of gender inequity, right, and the, despite the fact that, of course, we tend to have clothes dryers and not helicopters, right, so some sort of mis mismatched assumptions. Uh, nonetheless, the imperative to use new technologies, materials, and architectural techniques to open up new ways of life was explicitly uh, developed here. Okay, so this basic question of the house as an experimental site, my second sort of general claim, this premise that architecture could provide opportunities for individual and collective transformation according to a new means of self-care and territorial organization also underlay the post-war discourse on the solar house. And through it, focused this potential for transformation on the collective relationship to resources in the environment. Right, so not just sort of forms of suburban uh, uh, sort of manipulation, but really thinking about a broader set of resource and uh, geological concerns. Tightening the frame a bit, not just that architecture is a biopolitical machine producing new subjects, 
but that some aspects of this emergent subjectivity are focused directly on knowledge of and activities relative to the changing relationship between man and environment. Here's one typical example, a house designed by the Chicago architect George Fred, George Fred Keck in 1941. Uh, plan and materials are harnessed in order to maximize the absorption of solar radiation. The south-facing facade, as you see, is almost fully glazed uh, with insulated double-plane glass panels interspersed with single-paned uh, fixed, or, sorry, single-paned operable windows. So uh, basically, um, these little windows here you could open up, right, to kind of allow ventilation. The others were fixed, uh, insulating, uh, more insulated uh, panels. Though largely constructed of wood, the interior uh, was of masonry, a more thermally active material that could absorb heat during the day and allow it to radiate into the room at night. As is also evident in these photographs, vis-a-vis -vis the diagram at the bottom, the eave was very carefully designed so as to block sun in the summer. Uh, right on the left and allow it in in the winter on the right. And, and many of you probably know this is sort of two or three keystrokes today to kind of figure out the precise projection of this eve. It took them about three and a half months to determine exactly how long it should be. So, you know, we've progressed, I guess. Yeah. There were many attempts in the decade or so after World War II to use design technology and materials to capture the radiative properties of the sun. A number of experiments at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, for example, explored the use of water and chemical compounds as heat storage, allowing for a house to be completely heated by passive and active solar means by the end of the 40s. Interest in design methods for solar heating was surprisingly wide-ranging, and a solar house principle, as it was called, informed the work of a number of architects in the period. Here we see a proposal by Lou Kahn and Oskar Stonerov for a typical Pennsylvania solar house. And here, an early version of Philip Johnson's glass house, a decidedly non-environmental house, of course, the final product of the glass house, right? But this image, uh, this uh, model was produced for the Ladies' Home Journal and shown in the Museum of Modern Art in 1947 as a sort of image of a solar suburbs that lasted very briefly after the war. We could also, of course, be looking at uh, buildings such as this, the work of Ernst Plischke in New Zealand, and no doubt many others here in Australia, for their interpretation of modernism on these sort of general solar terms. Later in the 1950s, uh, a competition for the design of a solar house resulted in dozens of demonstrably modern entries with cubage diagrams that emphasized how the volumetric approach of architectural modernism made it most appropriate for solar efficiency. So that's just sort of a very quick kind of run through of hundreds of possible solar houses that we could be looking at that kind of play out some of these general themes. These images again are evidence, indications of the ambitions of architects to engage knowledge about environmental concerns according to a range of possible futures and begin to recast, albeit thus far quite subtly, uh, the relationship of the human to the globe. Other kinds of images also contributed to this emergent discourse. This map, for example, another image of the globe, uh, attempts to demonstrate the relative extent of regional fuel reserves. Uh, totally wrong, as we know now, right? Uh, due to the state, you know, the sort of state of public knowledge at the time. This was in the Chicago Tribune in 1948, um, right? The, the sort of line in the Middle East there would kind of go up, you know, very high, uh, certainly above the building in this scale, right? Um, uh, but reflecting, even though it was wrong, right, reflecting a pervasive anxiety that oil and other natural resources were finite and would eventually be depleted. 
this anxiety was more forcefully asserted in M. King Hubbard's 1948 illustration of the concept of peak oil, right, a concept that's returned uh, recently, uh, which clarified, according to careful calculations involving the cost of industrial equi equipment, uh, various other sorts of cost and profit analyses and geological testing, that all natural resources were indeed ultimately finite and further, Hubbard is proposing here that their endpoint could be estimated, right? That you could sort of map their eventual depletion. Uh, some diagrams that, in effect, attempt to forecast here with some precision the end of the cowboy economy. Another prominent illustration of this anxiety and another indication of the expanded discussion of alternatives uh, comes from this article in Fortune magazine, which uh, attempted to map out uh, through images such as this, which themselves are sort of pioneering in the representation of energy flows, uh, attempting to map out the logic through which uh, power from the sun, as the article put it, could be engaged as a matter of course in industrial systems. The author decried what he called the socioeconomic lethargy that characterized attempts to integrate alternative resources into patterns of American life. He offered this image as an alternative a not-so-utopian house uh, illustrated, I'm sorry, a not-so-utopian future illustrated in fortune by this not-so-utopian house. I'll let you, you know, gaze at that for a moment here, right? take it all in. Um, the drawing significantly was done in-house, uh, as the author put it, for, quote, fortune's visually-minded readers. This image was produced, in other words, to emphasize the urgency of preparing for many possible futures. The not-so-utopian house was a complete survival system for a family of four. It was a solar house with south-facing windows covered by an extended eave. Uh, it also had the capacity to, quote, grow its own food in the form of algae on its roof. In the workshop pictured here, an extension of the familiar technological innovations of the post-war kitchen, garbage was burned to charge the algae suspension on the roof and keep it growing. This algae, was, uh, this algae was filtered, heated, and then made available as a, quote, concentrated sludge, a dark green paste with a pleasant grassy odor, and enough fresh organic matter to supply the entire protein requirements for the family, end quote. The interest here was not only in new design and building practices, but also in new ideas about the human, with anticipation of, as the author noted, quote, the internal metabolic adjustments by which, by which we shall subsist contentedly on hydrolyzed sawdust and predigested vitaminized algae. So, you know, the point here is the contentedly part, right? That this notion that not only will our sort of, uh, you know, biology shift, but our sort of conception of the world will be such that we'll enjoy this kind of, you know, grassy sludge uh, as we do sort of, you know, a fine steak or something. I, you know, the sort of connoisseurship of algal sludge, one can imagine, right? I, I offer this then as a somewhat extreme example of the kind of images that inflected aspects of American architectural and broader cultural in inquiries in the post-war period. And all of these images of the case study in the solar houses, of the decline of fuel availability, and here of the not-so-utopian future, are data points, and just a few, as I mentioned, of hundreds of possible examples, evidence of the image in transition that humans had of themselves and their environment. 
So with these examples in mind, I want to shift our focus onto a related set of ideas, and really related in the sense of all of these people were sort of working together in many ways. Um, a related set of ideas and images that also proliferated, though with somewhat diff different valence in this same period. Diagrams concerned with explaining to architects how to better accommodate their designs to the surrounding climatic conditions. As we can see initially, uh, these eco-images symptomatically constructed their explanations with reference to spheres and planes, right? So sort of recalling this sort of cowboy uh, uh, spaceship economy. Through attempts to engage the human and the global environmental simultaneously, and by virtue of this sort of centralized figure of the human, which continues to be presented as the object of analysis and the subject of concern. For the remainder of my comments this evening, I want to examine some of these climate methodological images and also place them in the context of the emergent universe of technical images in which they, from which they emerged. Prominent in this climatic discourse was the work of Hungarian emigre architects Victor and Aladar Olgyai. They're twins, as you can see. Uh, Aladar is on the right with the pipe, right? Every photograph, he has the pipe to distinguish them, but the pipe is very important and will return a couple of times, really, so keep your eyes on the pipe. Uh, they were twins, as I said, who spent their professional careers after emigrating from Hungary uh, at MIT and then Princeton, exploring methods for adjusting the architectural design process to better assess the relationship between a building and its climatic surround. Though perhaps not known to many of you here, has anybody heard of these guys? Show of hands, okay, a few, good, yeah, yeah. Um, they were well known in the post-war years, mostly for their two books, Solar Control and Shading Devices of 1957, and Design with Climate, a bioclimatic approach to architectural regionalism of 1963, which has actually just been reprinted by Princeton University Press, so, you know, indicates something. Uh, both of these books entered into the curricula of architecture schools and sat on the reference shelves of design firms around the world. In the 1950s, just before mechanical systems of heating, ventilation, and air conditioning became affordable and widely available, right, that we now sort of live in constantly today, the Ogyais were the preeminent researchers into methods for using architectural means to mitigate climatic variance. So I want to reiterate this point. The diagrams we're going to look at uh, were not about climate change, of course, right? Uh, although we'll see, you know, that sort of comes up a little bit. Uh, but we're only general, you know, sort of only generally related to this uh, precept of resource scarcity that we've just been talking through. Although the Ojai has also designed a number of solar houses, they were focused instead on the capacity for modern architectural techniques to provide a novel engagement between interior and exterior climatic conditions, right? So that it's less hot inside than it might be outside, for example, and thereby improve the human condition. And uh, on the potential for climate design methods, furthermore, to bring modern ways of living to a much wider spectrum of the global population, right? So very profound sort of uh, economic development logic to a lot of this as well. Again, as we see that concern with understanding the global dynamics of climate patterns, we're also focused on new ideas about the human. Indeed, in the plans, diagrams, and methods developed by the OGIs, the figure of the human is central, right? Literally rendered in the middle of images intending to illustrate these challenges, and conceptually as the figure of the new possibilities that these architectures would allow. Here we see the human figure placed amidst a range of factors, from moral to historical, thermal, sonic, and spatial. The role of architecture, it was proposed, was to filter these needs, align them with design strategies. 
man, and we have to keep saying man in quotes, right? But man, nonetheless, uh, 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 as Victor Ojai wrote in 1953, with his intimate physical, I'm still quoting, with his intimate physical and emotional needs remains the module, the central measure in all approaches. The success of every design must be measured by its total effect on the human environment, end quote. Versions of these diagrams accompany the Ojai's architectural drawings and methodological proposals, serving both to illustrate that method and also to clarify that their project was to produce a universal comfort zone, a design condition most amenable to human habitation. Also significant in the quote I just read was this slippage from man and his needs to the human environment, a shift that begins to hint at a general transformation from a gendered though univocal condition of the male subject to a more nuanced consideration of the species, man, anthros, as having identifiable and universal needs. Under the rubric of man, we could trace a much wider reconsideration of the social and technological forces aimed at improving social conditions in the decades following World War II. Indeed, the notion is ubiquitous. Edward Steichen's exhibition, The Family of Man, is perhaps the most straightforward opening, or one of the most straightforward, there's many options here, uh, opening at the Museum of Modern Art in 1955 and touring, as we see here, globally for the rest of the decade. This is the Turin manifestation. Um, uh, he, they demonstrated images of individuals across a geographic and sociocultural spectrum brought together to confirm a, affirm a sort of global consistency to the human condition. In a similar vein, the German emigre psychoanalyst Eric Fromm discussed the possibility of what he called a science of man that, as he saw it, would better realize the potential of the species through, quote, making the world a human one, end quote. In post-war architectural discussions, the interest in this universal condition of the human and in how design could improve that condition was also widespread, from Wittkauer and Rowe to Smithson and Woods, uh, though perhaps most explicitly figured in the Corbusier's modular of the late 1940s, uh, actually the subject of a recent uh, fabulous exhibition at the Centre Pompidou. The Ojai's climate research began through concerted engagement with a widespread interest in articulating a building design according to maximum exposure to light and air. They were here expanding on research sort of generally considered of Walter Gropius, Frank Lloyd Wright, Richard Neutra, and many others, and drawing directly on some of the early work of Le Corbusier, relatively early, I should say. Sorry, Anthony. Um, <laughs> Early-ish, right? Attention to diurnal and seasonal patterns was a factor for Le Corbusier uh, uh, all along, as we can see suggested in this sketch from 1928, right? Even though the arrow is actually should be up a little bit, right? But the sort of general notion that the sun matters, right? Corb's approach became even more specific with his development of the brise or sun-breaking device, a fin or louver that was attached to the facade to selectively modulate solar incidence on the interior. The basic principle of the Brissolé was first clarified in this sketch for the Amoub de Clarté, a Geneva apartment building designed in 1930. Um, and so you can just see up on the top left, um, you know, Ete, the solar sun, sort of coming in at a sharp angle from above and being blocked by uh, these protruding fins, and then the winter sun being able to go into the space, right? If you're just far on the, on the far, sorry, you're right, on the top right. <clears throat> Capacity for user adjustability to the shading system was key, as it would allow inhabitants to control, to some extent, how and when solar radiation would enter the building, right? So here you see the sort of various ways in which the facade could be, uh, the shading condition of the facade could be manipulated. 
The brisole soon became a crucial aspect of modern design methods. What we can see, indeed, as these examples that I'm going to sort of quickly run through here uh, start to aggregate, is that the means by which modern architectural strategies globalized in the first half of the 20th century before HVAC systems were widely available was largely through the shading device, an adaptive method that could adjust a building to its climatic locale. Uh, lo locations, that is, that were often not insignificantly in regions then being subjected to new forms of economic management and industrial development. And buildings that were often designed and built uh, according to government initiatives, such uh, most sort of straightforward as the Ministry of Education and Health designed in Rio in 1936, uh, 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 sort of, you know, imagining and putting on display the sort of modernization and social welfare uh, processes of this emerging industrial economy. Images and diagrams of 77 of these climate-sensitive buildings were collected in the section on architectural examples in the OGI Solar Control and Shading Devices of 1957. As the formal and technical project of climatic modernism began to be translated in the OGI's work, <clears throat> sorry, began to be translated uh, in the Oldrise Atlas of Climatic Buildings into a method for systematically rethinking the relationship between humans and the environment. So this is sort of a complex collection of the recent past. Each spread contains a photograph of a building, as we see, in this case two, uh, usually focused on the exterior, uh, to suggest the formal variety that these shading devices allow and also a number of technical components, right? A suggestion of the methodological means by which to correlate this building to its climate, right? So a sort of survey of recent exercises and examples in this regard. There's one more. The Oldrise climate design method was complex. It emerged both from the knowledge gained by collecting and analyzing these recent examples, and also through a number of early, early attempts to develop a means for representing the relation, you know, producing an image, right, of the relationship between architecture and climatic data and making that data accessible to architects, right? So a sort of image of translation. At MIT in the late 1940s, in collaboration which, with something, a sort of short-lived group called the Building Research Advisory Board that was part of the US National Science Foundation, they focused on developing a means for representing this relationship uh, through this kind of new conception of a climatic region with apparent consequences for architectural design. So this is just sort of one example. This actually uh, distributed by the American Institute of Architects as a sort of means, and, and by House Beautiful, a sort of shelter journal, right, as a means to kind of help architects understand the climatic conditions of their given site in very general terms, and they got a little more specific. A detailed methodological premise began to be articulated, one that would play out in numerous publications before reaching its mature state in 1957. The basic premise of the method, represented very schematically here, was to collect climatic data, evaluate it, integrate it into new diagrammatic representational methods, and then use these methods as parameters for formal and material choices in design. Right, so the idea here, and I'm not gonna describe this method because it's complex, right, and not really that interesting, but what, you know, what's sort of at stake is that the use of new diagrammatic tools was the means by which climatic knowledge would become accessible to architects, right, and we'll sort of see how that plays out. The focus of the method was on the design provision of a comfort zone, as it can be read through this bioclimatic chart, a device, again, now familiar uh, to, many architectural, uh, uh, to many architects and their environmental consultants. The upper dotted line that you see 
uh, on the top there, angled as it responds to both temperature and humidity, indicates a limit beyond which there is the danger of sunstroke, right? So stay below there, right? Uh, the lower dotted line down below here simply indicates freezing. The center line um, cuts across uh, how it shows how a shading system can cut through these extremes and neutralize them. And it sits, as you can see, at the bottom of the comfort zone. Shading, materials, orientation, all of these factors are brought together to provide an interior space made as ideal as possible for the habitation of humans. In this schematic bioclimatic index, we can see that this was quite a lofty goal. Distinct from the analytic version, here again, the human is figured in the center of the zone. And we know that it's Aladar, because he's smoking a pipe, right? Relaxing on a modern chaise, reading the newspaper completely at ease without irritation, without having to experience any of the also possible climatic conditions that surround and threaten him. A stable, protected figure, solid in the experience of a well-designed space, consistent across changes in the elements that the past, present, or future can bring. Especially significant is that here in 1957, the nature of the image of man's relationship to environment was one of stasis, right? A stasis that was rendered as such through the intervention of carefully considered architectural methods. Much can be made, I think, of this image of stasis. On the first level, we can recognize the specificity of this diagram type as simultaneously technical and expressive, right? Not just data, but also desire. They were a hybrid uh, of a number of forms of visual, visual these, these, sorry, these kind of, uh, these sorts of diagrams, climatic diagrams, were a hybrid of a number of forms of visual communication. They exceeded, for example, the more general formal and organizational methods of other architectural diagrams in that they focused on environmental con considerations normally seen to be external to the design process. At the same time, in this expansive gesture, they do not precisely engage either political or scientific forms of image-based attempts to instantiate new life conditions. In other words, unlike the blue marble that we saw at the beginning, they were not images that intended to convince the viewer of a new sort of ethico-political principle. And because they were not strictly scientific, they did not rely on the purported truth value of science to clarify implicit proposals for behavioral change. Neither political, nor aesthetic, nor scientific, these architectural climatic diagrams operate in a productive, though awkward, relationship to what media theorist uh, Willem Flesser has called the technical image. Such images began to multiply in the post-war period and began to enter into public discourse primarily as a means of distributing technical information and usually claiming some form of quasi-objective knowledge. Such images, Flesser proposed, tended to figure, quote, relationships among, among things that no one would otherwise suspect, unquote. And although Flesser's focus was on images that were produced through technical means, which is to say photographs and images on screens, he also saw in the visual production of information a new class of uh, visual material that were, quote, intended to serve as models for action. Thus, a second transition. In mapping this new image of man and environment, architectural climatic diagrams are also evidence of the transition from an aspirational diagram expressing desire to a computational or data-driven image that makes a claim to objective knowledge. Caught in this transition, many diagrams from the 1950s attempt both, which is to say both fact and aspiration. They intend, as Boulding's implicit image theory implies, to draw out of subjective experience some universal validity and to produce a new image of the world in order to influence new kinds of expertise and new kinds of experience. 
images, again, that attempt to be instruments, themselves tools to transform the relationship between human and natural systems. It is then in these expressive interpretations of technical knowledge that we can trace how, the quasi how these quasi-technical diagrams intended to identify new conditions for the humans. On pragmatic terms, a static climatic interior had long been the dream of modern architectural interventions. Le Corbusier, again, famously foretold of a time and when, as he put it, every building around the globe will be 18 degrees, right? Uh, uh, by virtue, of course, of both architectural manipulation and mechanical systems. The comfort zone, as an image of a human able to control, resist, and defend against environmental threats, was also an explicit attempt towards a sort, uh, an explicit attempt, sorry, uh, towards a sort of normalization. The premise of which, as uh, Paul Rabineau argues relative to Georges Conguillem, a normalization which belies a specific claim to modernity as facilitating an ordered, rational, and understandable knowledge of how to improve life conditions, right? Sort of if we think it through correctly, then we can figure it out and make it work, right? The stability of the human condition that is, so it seems, reflected in the clarity of intentions of the desiring effective subject. Contrary to the not-so-utopian house that we saw before, this is something of a utopian premise, right? An argument in diagrammatic form, a somewhat desperate attempt to use architectural techniques to prolong a collective image in which humans, through good intentions and well-considered investigations, can un unproblematically expand upon uh, the, the normal conditions of the species. Okay, so let's get to those conditions and their predicament. The Ojai's images and diagrams were initially, for many practitioners and clients in the period, quite convincing. From the mid-1950s, they gained a reputation as effective consultants who could assist the designer in providing an architectural means to stabilize interior climatic conditions. At, for example, at the 1955 Building for the American Association for the Advancement of Science headquarters in Washington, DC, they used, as you see, these semi-independent banks of vertical uh, operable shading louvers to manage the overheated East Coast summer. This building is still there, in fact, as the embassy of Tunisia, interestingly enough. The twins also consulted on Zerfus Breuer and Nervi's UNESCO building, completed in 1958 in Paris, which, as you can see here, a range of climatic uh, systems, vertical fins, operable louvers, and exterior shades. Their method, unevenly interpreted, informed the work of a wide range of architects in the period. And it's also worth noting, sort of bringing us sort of home, so to speak, um, uh, that this broad interest in shading you know, was very widespread. It's not to say that this building was developed out of influence of the Ojais, but rather that what they were sort of picking up on was being picked up on by many around the world, right? This was a relatively brief moment, however, as any attempt to prescribe a building's design according to specific environmental determinants was seen to frustrate formal expression, uh, a, a, an issue we're still dealing with today. What is more, the increasing flow of oil from the Middle East and by the end of the 1950s, the increasing influence of the heating and air conditioning industry led to widespread use of oil-powered mechanical systems to heat and cool a building. Designing with climate uh, it seemed, uh, was no longer that necessary. Much more than their work on buildings, then, the Ojai's methodological focus had important effects on the positioning of architecture as a field of research. 
When in 1953 they moved from MIT to Princeton, they did so in order to pursue research in the new Princeton Architectural Laboratory. It was an old horse stables, as you can sort of see in the middle there, right? Um, uh, uh, that was behind the football stadium that had been converted, uh, uh, converted to a lab and sort of this daylighting cube added on, on the side there. Um, <clears throat> their major, oh, sorry, these are some of the projects that they were attempting to play out within that uh, daylit space. Their major, funder pro major funded project at the lab, however, was the design and construction of a thermoheliodon device. Uh, climate modeling here involved not only the arc of the sun, but also, uh, which you can see sort of at the, this part here, this is an adjustable screen, right, to sort of manage wind direction. These were jets for humidity, obviously encased in a, in a sealed dome so that the sort of uh, cycles of climate can play out. And in fact, they were, you were even intended to bring soil from the site and sort of place it uh, within this device. Uh, both to sort of reflect this kind of uh, consistency with the conditions that it would eventually live in, but also, you know, if there were any thermal capacities that pertained. This intricate technical device attempting to model climate much more precisely than heretofore allows me to briefly connect the work of the Olgeis, uh, here's the instrument panel, uh, to some other mid-century analyses of climate, and as a conclusion, to clarify how their images of stasis were confounded by other new ideas about the human. Just down the street from the Princeton Architectural Laboratory at the Institute for Advanced Study, the mathematician John von Neumann, another Hungarian emigre, had taken weather forecasting as a sort of test case to assess the data processing power of the IBM 701 computer, a process itself reinforced by the global proliferation of climate observation that resulted from a global scientific initiative called the International Geophysical Year, which from 1957 to 1959 was organized to increase knowledge of Earth, ocean, and atmospheric systems. So it was a three-year-long geophysical year, right? The International Geophysical Year also saw two other important developments for our discussion. This sort of pre-mediation of the blue marble photograph in this artist's rendering of the Earth from space, uh, and perhaps more, more significantly, the initiation of monitoring carbon buildup in the atmosphere, mostly in order to understand fluctuations in ocean temperature. The now well-known Keeling curve, which you see on the top there, uh, based on carbon monitoring at a Hawaii observatory, tracks the increase of carbon particulates from this period. The sort of rudimentary architectural condition of the observatory suggests a potent counterpoint to the discourse on comfort that I've been tracing an exposed observer, we can imagine, standing unprotected outside the comfort zone, looking out for 50 years at the slowly changing climate. New images of the relationship between man and environment were also being developed in the young science of ecology. Ecological analyses, as the diagram on top indicates, were interested in tracing man's capacity to disturb an existing set of interconnected energetic pathways. One of the earliest such experiments shown here involved planting nuclear material in a controlled ecosystem in order to measure its effects. I say controlled because I think we're kind of relying on the chain link fence there, right? Um, uh, so to sort of you know, plant an isotope and see where it kind of like putting a, a purple you know, in your blood to kind of watch it move through your body. Um, uh, so in order to witness what was presumed to be a natural inclination to return to a balanced state. 
chains of energy as they flowed through the ecosystem were in part the result of human influence, right? Man as a manipulator. At the same time, uh, that the impacts of these interventions also, uh, I'm sorry, these interventions also impacted humans in their animal state, right? That is according to their biological needs. So here, schematically, a dual positioning of man, decentered, a new image of the species as both manipulated and manipulator. By the early 1960s, new research uh, using increasingly powerful computers began to suggest an alternative to the premise that all ecosystems, or systems more generally, inherently worked towards a state of balance. Instead of a progression to a peak condition, such models conceived of the global ecological system with man as manipulator, right, in a state of constant flux, indeterminacy, and potential for collapse. The world system imaged here by the so-called group for the study of the predicament of mankind uh, at MIT, uh, the book that they produced was called The Limits to Growth, so it's often referred to as the Limits to Growth book, uh, was perhaps the most explicit and controversial. A system of variable inputs and outputs subject to bottlenecks and stoppages of complex and ultimately unpredictable consequences. This limits to growth model would come to maturity simultaneous to and in dialogue with Boulding's conception of the closed sphere of spaceship Earth. Much can be made, finally, sorry, much can be made, finally, of the subtle shift from man and climate uh, in, the, in their work of the 1950s to the bioclimatic approach Victor Oljai proposes in the subtitle to Design with Climate in 1953. The term invokes the relationship, uh, this bioclimatic term that is, uh, invokes the relationship of human systems to the contingent patterns of the atmosphere. The image of the human was updated as well. No skin, as we see here, vulnerable, a body subject to inputs and threats, almost sort of protected, right? These calculations sort of protecting, protecting the body in various ways. The system of climate and the systems of the body, the globe and its universal occupant, this image posits as one interconnected flow. Closing an important episode in the long transition of the nature of the image, which humans continue to have of themselves and their environment, and suggestive of how such representations can continue to both operate as instruments and also provide pathways towards new modes, new modes of existence in the face of an increasingly threatened future. Thank you. Um, it's kind of cheating, though, because I have one more image that I wanted to show just very briefly, which is uh, to say that the work of the Olgeis, the, the books that they produced in the 50s and 60s, uh, became the basis for a, a software platform known as Ecotect, which some of you might use. It's a sort of plug-in, right, to a lot of AutoCAD programs. Uh, that basically computer, you know, their, if their struggle was with lack of computation and sort of calculation that didn't quite allow them to, to formulate their ideas most clearly, you know, that's kind of been solved, right? So in part, we can see this image both for its kind of technological efficiencies, but also kind of where are the people, right? This kind of question of the human persists, right? So, okay, now I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to clap again. Okay. <laughs> well, we have uh, plenty of time for questions. So then, clearly, this uh, the disappearance of the human or something that, um, that accompanies a shift uh, in the nature of technology in architecture, whereby it's very easy for architecture to be bossed around by the science and yeah. by the technology of design. Where do you think the kind of 
when do you think that the, um, the shift towards ecology is a moment in which uh, science and design become decoupled? Is, mm. that, something, is that a mistake? Interesting. Yes and no. I mean, I think that, that part of what's interesting, I mean, uh, certainly in this moment, right, the, I mean, this is, we, it's best to kind of think of this as almost kind of scientistic, right, rather than scientific, if you will, which is to say it's not even quite, uh, the, the sort of real scientists were, were not that interested, right, the kind of ways in which they imagined both uh, sort of modeled the interior climate and also imagined means of controlling it. Uh, we're not, let's say, scientifically accurate in, in terms, in the terms, in, mostly in terms of the sort of uh, physiology of the human and how and the effects that it would have, right? Uh, so on the one hand, I think there's a sort of um, approach to science that is as expressive as it is data-driven. Again, right? This kind of notion um, uh, uh, that that science becomes a sort of aspect of the of the natural of the sort of outside world, and if you will, that architects can manipulate. Um, at the same time, though, there's a sort of claim, and, and a lot of what, I mean, in fact, here in, in Queensland, right, this sort of growth of architectural science, right, which was something of a different kind of field, uh, uh, Steve Zolokai and, and uh, 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 others at, at UQ and other places were, were really focusing on sort of shifting a question of architectural science from structure to environment, right, in very precise ways. And in that sense, this sort of notion that, that uh, you know, if not precisely architects, kind of somebody in the architecture school, right, had the capacity to kind of interface with the broader kind of scientific discourse, um, I think is, is one that has persisted in many significant ways to the present, right? So, so it was both a sort of uh, recognition of a decoupling that had already been there, if you will, right, in terms, of, in terms of the approach to kind of what science was, but at the same time as sort of bringing together in the sort of laboratory life, right? Uh, of the architect as in so far as, as, as many uh, architects, practitioners, and sort of uh, uh, trained consultants would get involved in the scientific aspects of these proposals. And much of what we see, I mean, this is just sort of one kind of heavily mediated example with this software platform, but, uh, you know, as these concerns of climate returned in the past few decades, the knowledge base is, was kind of there, available to everybody, right? I mean, this was continuing kind of in these labs, uh, as I like to put it, sort of back to the land and back to the lab, right, where the two sort of sites where this knowledge was kind of hi uh, hibernating and now, you know, has flowered once again, if you will. Yeah. So would you, would you recommend that we kind of cut to the chase and we just much more clearly represent what kind of rec um, conclusions might come out of our best explanations or our front-running explanations Um, I mean, rather than sort of make a recommendation, I mean, I think that what's on the table here is uh, two things. On the one hand, the extent to which our rec recognition that uh, the sort of technical knowledge about sort of what we need to do, right, relative to the climate crisis is well understood, right? And the issue, which is to say the issues are cultural, if you will, right? The issues are uh, social and collective and sort of in terms of our behavior and our lack of willingness to really transform on cultural terms, right? Uh, you know, this notion that we can sort of continue to produce technological fixes, right, I think is something that's really called into question by this work. So what's interesting to me about this material is how it sort of takes the sort of imagination and the imaging 
of this relationship, right, between humans and, and environment sort of head on. And I think in that sense, there's something, there's a sort of legacy to be continued here in terms of the, the types of speculative images that are produced in the architectural fields, right, and in other fields for that matter, but, you know, this is sort of where uh, we're talking today, which is to kind of take those speculations very seriously, right, and really kind of understand which, you know, how insofar as, uh, uh, and this is a big insofar, right, is kind of architectural renderings have some relationship to reality, right, uh, kind of how can they be informed by, by sort of data and knowledge in such a way that one can envision uh, possible futures that, you know, have some sort of tether uh, to the real world, but that kind of transform them according to these possible climatic futures, right? And once that happens, that's kind of a why into ethics if the license recovers, right? Yeah, something like that, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm, mm. Right, right, right. So that we don't need to see the layer of images. The architecture is already embodying itself as you can almost see the arrow. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, no, it's a very interesting question, and one of you know one of the sort of interesting shifts that plays out here. You know, one of the the principles of this sort of bioclimatic notion that the old guys develop, which which you know, and so someone bracketed out, but uh, which is very much about um, towers, right? About sort of commercial structures more than houses as they develop it in the '60s. Uh, but the premise is, you know, still is, that each facade, of course, looks different because it's responding different to the climate, right? So, so there's one means by which, yeah, you can sort of look at a building and understand it's kind of, it has a sort of technological legibility to it, right? But what happens very quickly, and I mean, I saw this already just kind of wandering from here to the hotel and back, right, is the extent to which, of course, these shading devices also serve a sort of ornamental or decorative or kind of expressive role and start to, uh, you know, which one can tell is if they turn the corner and the shading system is the same, right, then the sort of project here is, let's say, less technical and more ornamental, right? I mean, whatever, we, you know, it's, it's a fine, it's a spectrum, right? Um, uh, so to think that, that on the one hand, I think there is a sort of tendency in this period in the, in the late 50s and in the early 60s to really sort of render those systems legible on the facade, if you will. Um, uh, and that continues in many cases, and of course the whole kind of, uh, you know, Norman Foster-esque kind of uh, uh, German strains of some of this, uh, which is say Foster and the sort of German side of these strains of kind of uh, high-tech architecture, right, that were emerging in the 80s and 90s that were also very focused on these questions. But I think there's another way in which these become very quickly, I mean, this is really a kind of short kind of 55 to 63 sort of moment, right, where this really is a, is a functional issue, right, but when HVAC was not really available to manage all these systems. Uh, but very quickly as HVAC sort of takes over, um, uh, these shading devices persist, but again, not precisely ornamental because, um, uh, you know, they still serve a function, they alleviate the load, right, but they're, they're not, they're, the buildings are no longer sort of legible on those technological terms, right. I mean, one of the sort of, I mean, the building, I, I could skip back to it, but it would take a while. But one of the, you know, the buildings in Brazil, for example, you know, often had these very elegant, I mean, in the sort of, you know, 50s Brazilian modernism way, right, these kind of elegant curving facades with these very nice multifaceted uh, shading systems, often with kind of three different ways of manipulating them, right? So kind of on this day, you could do this, and on that day, you kind of turn this knob and move this over. Not exclusively, but for the most part, those shading systems are gone, and there's, you know, in-window Fetter's air conditioning system sort of placed in there. So it's really, uh, you know, a different sort of technological legibility, if you will, right? But that also has to do a lot with, you know, I mean, another aspect of the story that, uh, again, is sort of bracketed out is the sort of, 
uh, emergence of ASHRAE standards, right? The American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers, which produces global, a global regulatory mechanism, uh, you know, a sort of subtle part of the kind of economic attempts of uh, American economic dominance in the 50s, and, and uh, that, you know, increasingly insists that we are better conditioned and dehumidified, you know, than we were even in the sort of 50s and 60s. So challenges increase. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that, I mean, in effect, um, you know, the sort of conditions of the architect in neoliberalism, right, are one in which uh, uh, the architecture field, to some extent, uh, I mean, this, you know, to a small extent, but a significant one uh, from the perspective of the field, has sort of been uh, given a certain responsibility to kind of manage uh, energy efficiency and climatic issues, right, so that government doesn't have to. I mean, all these, I mean, the Green Star, the, the BREAM, the LEED stuff, you know, these are all... I mean, Green Star is non-governmental, right? I mean, this is also sort of, and 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 the sort of various things are, are industry-based, right? Um, uh, as a means to sort of uh, correct our own tendencies, right? Uh, so I I think on the one hand, there's a whole discourse to be had about the kind of uh, potential for resistance to that uh, continued uh, sort of. Uh, uh, condition of, of economic and, and statist constraint, right? And, and that's something to the side of this discussion, right? That, that, I mean, not that it's not relevant, but it's certainly sort of not the, the, the sort of topic at hand. More what, what um, you know, the images that I'm kind of thinking through and, and, and trying to work with uh, are, are about those sort of aspirations for cultural transformation, right? So it's to say that you know, this kind of notion that one could live contentedly off algae, right? I mean, this notion that one could sort of imagine, quite literally imagine and kind of image a world in which these completely different sort of, uh, you know, physiological and, and biological and, and geographic conditions pertain, um, uh, uh, that that has a certain kind of valence or a certain kind of impact that seems accessible to the architect today, right? Uh, so it's not to say that the kind of other questions of resistance are not sort of possible and appropriate, right, and worthwhile. Uh, I mean, in a way, it's, it's I don't know, I mean, as I'm saying this, I'm realizing maybe I've sort of given up on something to some extent, that, that it's to say, you know, I've, I really don't like this term of resilience, but it's to say that there's a certain uh, acceptance by which, you know, if, if Queensland is doubling its, its output of coal, and, and in fact, Griffith University recently, I think it was a Griffith UQ sort of collaboration, you know, that we're 
what we thought were sea levels in 100 years are actually going to be in like 15, right? I mean, it's not a pretty situation. Uh, rather than, I guess that to some extent, I've, I've sort of tried to make myself comfortable with a position that says rather than try to convince the government to not support coal, which seems difficult, uh, that there's another set of, of sort of trajectories that one can pursue to sort of think of how to live you know, in, in a sort of shrunken landmass or sort of according to these rising seas and other forms of, of sort of climatic uh, imbalance, right? Um, I don't know, I'm sort of frustrated with my own answer there, but, uh, but I think that it's, it's some combination of those, of those sort of aspirations. Right, right, right. Right. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, no, no, and again, totally valid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, the sort of, you know, the way this plays out in the kind of American political history is, you know, Jimmy Carter telling people to put on a sweater instead of, you know, we're not going to go to war in the Middle East, we're going to put on sweaters. And it's like, no, we'd rather go to war, right? I mean, you know, so this is, this is a, and we're still living with those, you know, we're still not wearing sweaters, right? Yeah, please. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, it's it, it's a sort of from a lot of places, right? I mean, on the one hand, um, the kind of emerge. I mean, again, something that's a later chapter, and, and we were talking earlier about our our, our colleague Jiahui Chang, who teaches at the National University of Singapore, putting out a book on tropical architecture any day now, if not already, right? Um, that this sort of you know other kind of uh, related discussions, methods, sort of approaches to these questions that. Um, you know, attempted to frame uh, the world, the globe, and, and, you know, with a very kind of aggressive, you know, sort of, we're no longer a colonial occupying power, so we're now going to kind of figure out how to make everybody live like us anyway, kind of, right, and, and, and reap the economic benefits and all of these things. And, I mean, you know, that, that a lot of the, I mean, you know, Fry and Drew, the kind of king and queen of this tropical architecture, you know, designed the headquarters for BP and Lagos, you know, with this great, beautiful shading structure on it, right? And that kind of building is a real palimpsest of a lot of this stuff, right, in terms of the extractive, you know, uh, uh, atrocities, right, that kind of occur through that headquarters across the Niger Delta. Uh, but I think that, so which is to say there's a very broad conception of the region and even this sort of, the extent to which the notion of the global that gets produced, right, uh, as an uneven concept with, you know, very fine-tuned kind of sense of, uh, you know, hot, hot, and hot, humid, and sort of all these different sort of uh, classifications, right, of, of specific regional spaces that all require a different approach. But this notion of the global that is very much a sort of Euro-American, you know, sort of antipodian, right, kind of notion of what the global is and how we can control it and manage it in these very specific ways. 
Uh, I mean, that's, I mean, it's, I don't know, it's not quite an answer, right? But, I mean, it, it, which is to say that the, it, well, it's, it's, it's happening with very explicit political and economic aims, right? And, and, and it's happening as a means to, um, um, again, a sort of imagine a, a, a sort of universality, a sort of seamlessness to experience, right? Uh, it's almost like the region exists so that you can kind of combat it, right? And to some extent, you know, as far as I know, the, the work that was coming out of UQ at the time and, and you know, uh, Henry Cohen was the other sort of big figure there, right? It was a bit distinct. I mean, there was a difference. Or I've actually just been kind of looking through some of these these books and trying to get my head around them. But um, uh, that had it. I mean, you know, and again, I'm not versed enough in the history of Australia or of Australian architecture to say anything incredibly coherent. But, but you know, it seems like there's a bit more of a sort of recognition of a almost a kind of real politic that kind of we have to deal with the situation that we're in and what are the tools that we have and how can we best kind of approach it. Um, uh, but in other cases, yeah, it's, it's quite, quite different from that. Yeah. yeah. Did you have a question? Yeah? Uh, yeah. yeah. How is like, the dialogue between like, architects and the public changed from looking back in the you know, 1940s and stuff where it was um, where like, we moved to much more specialized? And so if I was to look at a build, the analysis of a building now, especially if it's like a large building, Mm. I wouldn't be looking at some diagrams which are readily explainable. I would mm. be looking at finite element analysis of the flows through that building. And right, stuff like right. That. that would be very specific. And, you know, we're no longer seeing an image of a person there because we can see the temperature across that entire building all at once and right. represent it right. as some sort of distribution or sure, 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 sure. Uh, data-driven. How is that, like, dialogue between architects change now that it's not... Right, right, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, for all I can think about is Bjork Ingalls for some reason, which is not something I like to think about. But um, which is to say that this sort of notion that there's a diagram that drives the design is still very present in, to us, right? And, and, and perhaps a little less so to the public, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of sort of how the public interfaces with architecture in general as a sort of field, right, as opposed to just sort of walking into a building. But, um, you know, which is to say that the sort of notion that you're selling in a, a design idea through a sort of accessible visual tool, I think, persists in many ways. And, and I mean, also the sort of work of Philippe Rahm that, you know, that quite explicitly attempts to sort of uh, mediatize climate, right, to sort of present an image of the climatic conditions of a space uh, as a creative act, right? It's not a question of intervening in that climate or sort of, you know, transforming its energy efficient conditions, but rather revealing its kind of conditions through, you know, these sort of false color diagrams of hot to cold, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, on the one hand, I would say, you know, certainly the tools are different, the kind of media is different, but a lot, some of the kind of impulses are, are the same. Um, on the other hand, I think that you know the the sort of general public has very different expectations of sort of what a building is today. I mean, you know, I was feeling it was pretty hot out today for me at least. I'm a little muggy, right? I was like, oh, I want. Yeah, I was looking forward to going inside, right, and sort of having that kind of conditioned, dehumidified experience, right, and which is to say that we sort of know. 
you know, we anticipate that the experience of a building will be a kind of uniform condition. You know, I could go in here, I could go to a hotel, I could go to a restaurant, I could go to an office building. You know, there's a little variation, right? And you know, there's a handful of people that kind of you know live in their sweat, right? And and uh, but but for the most part, you know, we kind of re respond to buildings implicitly according to their kind of system condition, right? But I don't know that we that there's any sort of public understanding of how those systems really operate, right? So. Right, right, have to deal with it, yeah. Right. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean, it's that, you know, there's, a, there's an aspect to this story that, you know, the sort of broader frame of it, you know, which is that, you know, sort of the seeming peak of Western civilization is air conditioned, right? I mean, we can't imagine you know, the sort of econ economic systems and, and, and sort of social systems that we live in without air conditioning. I mean, it's not everywhere, of course, right? But it's sort of, I mean, it sort of is and isn't everywhere, right? I mean, even if you're in a space where the air conditioning doesn't exist, that not, we, we know not only is that climate determined by the fact that air conditioning is elsewhere, right? But, you know, to a large extent, there's kind of extractive industries or there's other forms of sort of manipulating energy and power and resources, uh, which is the air conditioning is kind of effectively everywhere, right? Even if you're uh, kind of, you know, in the Arctic or the desert, right? I mean, you're still kind of dealing with its effects, right? Um, so I think in a way, I don't know, I mean, you know, what are the kind of images, what are the kind of strategies that will allow us to recognize that fact and its import, right, I think is part of what's on the table here. Yeah, Sandra. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Right, right. Right, sure, sure. Yeah, and, and you know, and there's sort of endless, uh, not endless, but you know, there's a, a, a ever increasing from this period sort of set of tools, right? And and I mean, the history of the Passive House, you know, is something that I've been sort of cracking open and, you know, which was largely kind of initiated by this disgruntled nuclear physicist, right? And, and this kind of question of, 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 of super insulation um, being in part in response to kind of all these wacko solar people who didn't have any kind of systematic ideas and, you know, where super insulation helps everywhere. You know, you kind of don't need to think about it. You just sort of do it, you know. Um, it cools, it heats, and so on. So uh, in, in some ways, I think that what part of what the sort of broader research agenda that I've tried to put forth is attempting to do is instigate those kind of studies that would help us understand these questions a lot better, right? I mean, I can contain a certain piece of it, but there's a kind of scope that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work out here that um, encourages, yeah, precisely those sorts of questions, I guess. Yeah, great. It's a great point on which to uh, conclude. And I great. Would like to be thank you, Thank you all. Great questions. Really appreciate the questions. <laughs>